0: We can't just outsource our thinking to the culture. We can't just outsource it to Harvard, which was originally in Yale, which were originally founded to train Protestant ministers and embodied that tradition for a very long time. Do We have to rediscover, rediscover what the original Protestant thinkers
1: thought. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Marlo Slayback and Tom Seward.
1: Today's guest is Aaron Wren, who is a co founder and senior fellow at American Reformer, an organization revigorating Protestantism in American religious, political, and cultural life. He's also a contributing editor at City Journal and writes regularly on his Substack, which features his insights on Christianity, culture, family, politics, and the economy. Thanks so much for joining us, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Before we get to our interview, I'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you would like to help us in pursuing this mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So Aaron, perhaps you can kind of start by telling us a little bit, bit about American Reformer. And I'm vaguely familiar with kind of, you know, what's happening over there and, and kind of on the side of what, what's it linked to. Um... Newfounding. Sorry, that's what I was thinking.
0: Of. It's actually separate from New Founding, but there's some some overlapping people who are involved. Sure.
1: So, yeah. but uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, that, that's kind of the mental kind of link that I make for myself, just because I'm, I'm a bit more familiar with new Founding. But if you could tell us a little bit more, and me and Tom are both Catholics for the record, so we definitely, you know, this will be a learning opportunity for us as well. But if you tell us a little bit about, about more what that project is, you know, hopes to accomplish and, you know, what your role in all of that is, that I think that'd be a great way to start us off.
0: Right. Well, the fact that you're both Catholics gets to something within political conservatism, which it is a very Catholic-dominated movement for those who are Christian. Obviously, there are Jews and others involved as well. But the Christian wing of conservatism has been very Catholic-dominated, even where Protestants, especially evangelical Protestants, are the largest, most important voting block in the Republican coalition. And so there haven't really been platforms for Protestant intellectuals to be able to engage on things like political theory and political theology in the way that the Catholics have had, you know, platforms uh, that, that basically represented that point of view or was sort of based in that point of view. Also, a lot of the evangelical institutions that were out there were sort of representative of what you might call an establishment perspective. And this was an establishment perspective that's basically been drifting left in a lot of senses of that word and really no longer represented the, you know, sort of rank and file evangelical person. And so what we wanted to do was create an institution that would be a specifically Protestant home for evangelicals to engage on the biggest, most controversial decisions from the day. on on sort of their own kind of Protestant basis. So I write a lot about gender issues and the future of the church, which comes from my sort of management consulting background. We've got a lot of PhDs in theology and political science writing on Protestant uh, political theory, uh, for example. We also want to do more on race. So I really feel like race, sort of gender, sexuality, and politics have been the biggest issues out there sort of ripping a lot of these evangelical organizations apart and also sort of ripping some of the some extent ripping the Republican Party apart, although you can, um, you know, you can basically view, you know, there's a different sort of sort of policy issues there around trade and around, you know, wars and things of that nature. But there has been this this split, I think, that was revealed by Donald Trump's candidacy, that in both the political conservative world and sort of the religious conservative world, the elites did not really speak For the masses, they didn't share the values of the masses. They were very assimilated to the cultural milieu of the left and of these sort of big blue cities where they they live. And so, we wanted to create something that would be not political. You know, we're we're nonpartisan. We're a five hundred one c three nonprofit, so we're not part of Conservatism Inc. by any means. Uh, But we are writing a lot about how Protestants should approach politics and thinking about these issues. Again, in a way that we think is more represent, representative of the base and more representative of the rethinking that needs to be done in a world that's kind of been overly dominated by baby boomer perspectives—you know, kind of you know retro '80s thought processes, things of that nature. So you would say we, you know, to, to pick some kind of politically conservative organizations, you would say we're similar to American Compass in how they're trying to essentially rethink trade policy and economic policy in this new world, we're sort of trying to rethink some of these things theologically. So it's sort of got the same reformist bent. Although we're very serious and we're not, um, you know, not provocateurs by any means, we sort of have a little more of the fighting spirit of the American mind as well as, as in addition to some of the high culture orientation you would find with the first things. And so I think we have a, we would have an affinity with all of those groups as well. So that's what I would, I would say. So that's kind of what we're doing. So we have a a journal that we publish, the American Reformer Journal at AmericanReformer.org. Check it out. We're publishing very serious articles by serious people on these topics. We also have a fellows program, the Cotton Mather Fellows for, for young uh, Protestants up and coming. And then we also, uh, which really, one of the things that really distinguishes us is our campaigns, that we're actively involved in working with stakeholders inside of institutions such as. Christian colleges who are not pleased with the turns that those institutions have been taking to date. And we're trying to help them basically keep their institutions on mission. So we work with board members, we work with funders, we work with students, we work with pastors, people of that nature to help them really adapt to this current world, which is very different than the historic world. That's been a big, big part of my work is is kind of diagnosed in culture and then also just you know push back against people who are drifting in directions that we think are off base. So that's that's sort of a, a an overview of it.
2: Well, American reformer, American mind, and American compass. That's quite the trio.
0: Very 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 American there. Well, we are American, and so you know one of the things I would say about uh, about us is. You know, Protestantism Christianity is a global religion, and so you know we're not uh, here for some specifically American religion, but we are looking mostly at the American unapologetically looking at the American context and the American Protestant context. That's our context, and so that's that's the one that we are really focusing on. And of course, the word reformer both refers to reform theology and the Reformation, but also to our desire to reform the evangelical world, which is in dire need of reform.
2: Well, then let's jump into that, because you gave a lot of different entryways into different topics that we could explore, and I'm sure we'll get into all of that. But in terms of reforming the evangelical movement in America, could we maybe, since like Marlo said, we're both Catholic, so I don't think either of us are particularly well-informed about the history and the place of evangelicalism in American, not only American, the American religious scene, but American politics. So maybe you could give us a primer on how we've gotten to where we are today.
0: So first is how do we define what an evangelical is? And there's a lot of different ways to do that. There's a lot of debate over that. I define it primarily sociologically the main survey methodology used for categorizing people's religions in surveys is called the RELTRAD model and there're basically three options for protestant mainline evangelical and black protestant and so the mainline are the traditional established denominations you know episcopal church presbyterian church usa evangelical lutheran church in america the united methodist church is classified in there the, you know the reformed church in america the united church of christ these old school uh, denominations that really dominated Protestant life, especially elite Protestant life, up through the mid-century before they really went into decline. Obviously, the Black Protestant tradition is the Black Church tradition, which itself is extremely diverse. Uh, there's no one Black Church, but that's kind of its own thing. And basically, if you're not in one of those two buckets, congratulations, you're an evangelical. But you know, really, what what we think of as evangelicalism started got started in the '40s it was often called neo-evangelicalism because there's other things that have gone by evangelical in the past. In continental Europe, evangelical just means Protestant. So it has a lot of different meanings. But people like Billy Graham and Carl Henry, what they wanted to do was essentially have a sort of a, a, a third way, if you will, between this sort of very hardcore fundamentalist kind of backwoods religion and this sort of a liberal Protestant mainline tradition, which is to say... They wanted to keep traditional, orthodox, conservative theology, but be much more missional, be much more culturally relevant. They wanted to reach the masses. They weren't just interested in keeping kind of small but pure. As I said, how can we articulate you know, the gospel in a new way? So this kind of grew, and I think because of that heritage, really sort of cultural adaptability has been one of its hallmarks. And so as the mainline churches went into decline, especially in the 1970s, evangelicalism really started to grow and really started to get big because it was more adaptable to the changing times that were going on. And so there's a lot of different flavors of evangelicalism. And I I kind of identify three main strands of it. One is the culture war strand, which you could say, you know, originated in the seventies out of the new right movement with people like Jerry Falwell and James Dobson and Pat Robertson. And this was a sort of a fundamentalist inflected, we don't like the way the culture is going, so we're going to fight back. We're going to take back the culture. You probably heard that before. This moral Majority was the main organization of this movement. And it arose at a time when it was at least plausible to claim Christians were a major moral majority. I don't think anybody would claim that today. But that's basically where it got its start. And this was a huge, very large, influential strand. Uh, up to the present day, you know, a lot of the people who supported Donald Trump would have fallen into that. A second strain is what I call secret sensitivity. And this is what most people think of when they think of an it evangelical. It's really the non-denominational suburban megachurch model as pioneered by people like Rick Warren at Saddleback Church in Orange County or Bill Hybels at Willow Creek in Northwest Suburban Chicago. And what this was, was essentially a very contemporary Style of service that had like sort of contemporary music. It didn't have a lot of formal liturgies or anything of that nature. You didn't have to dress up. It preached very therapeutically with very applied. And the idea is let's figure out how to reach people who are abandoning these old stodgy mainline churches. And so that's really essentially, I, I think, in a lot of ways, the evangelical heartland uh, even today. And these people have tended to be conservative theo- theologically and and also politically as well, voting a lot of Republican and and that also came out of the 70s and then in the 90s there was sort of the development of a new movement that i call cultural engagement which was much more urban sort of came came into being along with the resurgence of the cities it's located in places like new york or in college towns and this is similar to seeker sensitivity in that it it it's designed to sort of reach reach that urban culture but it's just a different culture so wh- whereas the the seeker-sensitive[s] in the suburban mega churches really came about through baby boomer suburbia. This was really baby boomer movement. You know, this kind of cultural engagement movement has been much more urban. Definitely baby boomers involved, but also a lot of Gen X, especially millennials. They tend to be much more progressive socially. These tend to be theologically conservative churches. But their emphases are very, very different. They tend to try to downplay kind of conflicts with the culture, et cetera. And these people tend to exist in, again, the upscale milieus. Very similar to how the leadership of Conservatism, Inc., politically, lives in D.C. and New York. They're very culturally blue. They're often very socially liberal, by the way. A lot of people don't know that. And, you know, they're not really comfortable in sort of the precincts where the actual Republican voter lives And so, um, you know, there's a little bit of that going on with these people. And, you know, because this cultural engagement group was much more educated, much more media center-based, much more savvy about getting into the press, you know, they've really become dominant in, you know, kind of major institutions of evangelicalism. Like think Christianity Today magazine, for example, which was founded by Billy Graham, sort of the flagship publication of conservatism. You know, the president there, Timothy Dalrymple, Went to Stanford and Harvard. He was writing in 2012, I believe, about how, you know, uh, conservatives needed to sort of stop fighting against gay marriage. You know, now their editor-in-chief is Russell Moore, who's uh, former head of the Southern Baptist Convention's policy arm, but now is sort of more famous for slamming evangelicals. He wrote a famous 2000, I think 2015 op-ed in the New York Times talking about how, you know, conservative Make America Great Again voters were going to get a comeuppance on Judgment Day as they discovered that the brown-skinned foreigner on the throne and all, all this stuff. So, you know, he, he's kind of, you know, these kinds of people have been very, very, very stridently publicly opposed to sort of the culture war and kind of mainstream seeker-sensitive evangelical base, and it's caused a lot of tension and a lot of friction in this movement, which had sort of congealed really in the 80s and 90s and become politically influential kind of has been coming apart and being riven with conflict. Parallel to, but not exactly like, political conservatism.
1: So, I mean, just coming from a Catholic perspective, obviously there are tensions in the Catholic Church, especially among, you know, I I go to a traditional Latin mass where a lot of my fellow parishioners are quite conservative, but you also have the a segment of, I mean, I'll just quote the statistic, not directly, but I I have seen a statistic show that a lot of American Catholics do vote, you know, democratically and, or for Democrats rather. And, you know, obviously a lot of that, a lot of the basis of that party is opposed to uh, a lot of conditions of our faith. What would you say is the tension within Protestantism today? You mentioned maybe having kind of uh, trying to appeal to more progressive Christian kind of people with, with those affinities has, has that caused a internal tension within Protestantism and how does that, how does that bear out when it's, you know, the Catholic church is, you know, this unified body, even though unified, you know, but Protestantism has mul- multiple, kind of different denominations, things like that. So how would you answer that question? Right. Well,
0: One of the big differences with Catholicism, obviously Catholicism is a unitary system. So if you want to leave the Catholic Church and you've left the Catholic Church. And also Catholicism is a sacramental system. And so you go to Mass and, you know, you're there for the sacrament predominantly. And, you know, the sermon, the homily is actually very short and generally very, you know, nebulous. It doesn't really say a whole lot. Whereas Protestant churches have tended to be very sermon-oriented. You know they they have tend to have a low sacramentality, and therefore, what's being preached, whether you like the preacher as a you know counts for a lot. Whereas, who is presiding over the mass in the Catholic Church is really not as important. And you know, there's even you know a lot of theologically like this doctrine of ex opere operato that it, you know it doesn't matter what the the priest gets as long as he has valid you know ordination. He you know it doesn't matter what his politics are or anything like that, and so. I think they are a little different and people, you know, with Protestantism being very fragmented, you know, it does lead to a certain sectarianism and affinity, very affinity-based. Protestantism has also always been very ethnically and socioeconomically and traditionally racially stratified in a way that the Catholic Church wasn't. Now, Catholics weren't perfect on this. I mean, there were always ethnic parishes and a lot of fr- frustration when those parishes have been merged and all this stuff. And so you're well aware of that. But Protestantism was very, very heavily stratified. And so different movements represented sort of different classes. And so the main line, like Episcopalian and Presbyterian would have been more upper class, upper middle class. And what we think of as evangelicals today was predominantly a middle class movement, I would say. But what are the issues really driving it? Uh, I would say there's a few. One is politics, definitely politics. Trump was a great polarizing figure. And we even see this, David French is a good example of what's been happening. You know, David French would have been someone that you would have classified as a culture war hardcore conservative Christian. And now he's basically transformed into essentially a full-time critic of conservative culture war Christians. And he's, he's basically saying things now that are completely at odds with what he used to say back in the day. And so he's much more aligned with the call it establishment position that maybe he he would have before, so he sort of like changed his alignments a little bit, often over po- over politics being one. You know, do you support Trump? Do you not support Trump? Now keep in mind, evangelicals in the '90s when Clinton was impeached, one of the rationales was he's just simply morally unqualified to be president. You know, his you know he does not meet the moral standards for leadership. Then all of a sudden, Trump comes along, and I don't think anybody would say he's really an exemplar of Christian um, you know, moral living, and yet some of these evangelicals support him. And a lot of people, this is legitimate. It wasn't all about class or anything like that. A lot of people said legitimately, how can you support this man who's a braggart, who's you know a liar, who's a blowhard, who's had all these affairs, all these marriages? Like, How can you possibly support that? And so I think that was one, you know, this this migration from a sort of a politics of morals to a type of realpolitik, politics, has been one. And there are a lot of people um, who, in these more elite urban urban cultural engagement evangelical worlds, who really do want to make peace with the culture. They're not interested in being the bad guys anymore. They're not interested in fighting anymore. They're looking for ways to have cultural accommodation, if not theological accommodation. They're trying to square that circle. And that's causing a lot of, you know, a lot of static, I think, in disagreement with these other sort of evangelical uh, people. And again, Trump was really a polarizer there. A second one is wokeness. I mean, a large chunk of the evangelical church has gone all in on sort of a BLM-inflected uh, theology of race. Very few of these people know anything at all about race, candidly. I, I, I'm so unimpressed with their, with their knowledge and substance they rarely evince any substantive knowledge of race, let me put it that way, but they've just become obsessed. I mean, a lot of churches have essentially gone woke and they're just preaching. They're preaching essentially the the woke race ideology from the pulpit almost verbatim, maybe with a little bit of Christianese kind of put in there, but it's, it's the same stuff as the exact same secular world. And that has really caused a huge, huge dissension as well. So call, I would say wokeness and... Trump have really been the two big ones. And then to a lesser extent, kind of sexuality as some of these churches, again, they they try to, um, they're trying to essentially soften their stances on LGBT stuff. And, and, uh, and that's causing a, a huge, and, and that's not my area of expertise, but that's, that's also a source of contention in some places that are sort of dragging these things apart, but really Trump, Trump, and wokeness are the two main things that have done that. And, of course, we see that with French as as well. Both of those sort of racial issues and political issues have been key to really causing him to to rethink what he's doing. And so what's happened to him has happened to lots of other people from the senior to the retail levels, not necessarily his precise journey. Some people have moved the other way. They've become kind of, you know, more Trumpy, for example, even people you might not have expected, like Eric Metaxas, the uh, you know the, the author and talk show host, he's sort of a Manhattan dandy, you know, and you would think that he would be someone who would be very culturally engaging, yet he's speaking at the Jericho March. And so uh, some of these things don't play out quite the way you would expect them to. And then I guess there's one other, one other thing that's going on, which is this strain, this is related to the sort of denaturing of of the political threat to sort of some of these more urban or upscale milieu Christians is there's sort of been a, a push for essentially political disengagement in favor of a kind of a love. Do you, we just want to be salt and light, love your neighbor. Let's, let's not get involved in politics. A lot of people would say it's Neo Anabaptist. It's sort of like you should reject politics, you know, entirely it's sort of a councils of disengagement that I call it. And so that's, that's one that's become also a source of contention.
2: I'd love to ask more about that specific theme, the apolitical, Rod Dreyer was on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. He called it a winsome approach. The sort of, I guess, like the you were talking about seeker sensitivity that might fit that. Do you see that as uh, you wrote, you wrote a piece for First Things that I got a chance to read, sort of looking at cataloging? And cataloging is the word, the progression from when Christianity was the political, social, cultural norm of American society to then what you called the neutral world where. It was neither, I guess, a good thing nor a bad thing. And now with the Trump effect and with wokeness, it's, it's now hostile. To be a Christian is to be a bad thing. It's to be ignorant. It's to believe in outdated, harmful ideas, what have you. Do you think the winsome approach or the seeker sensitivity, do you see that as, I guess, maybe good for its time, but now insufficient to the threats we face? Or is this almost a causal thing, this sort of softer approach, deemphasizing a rigorous theology? and maybe even an end times or something more that has more teeth to it as causing this sort of capitulation to awokeness. Cause I see everywhere now when I'm driving around, I know the church is Protestant and if it has a BLM sign and the pride flag outside of it. And I just think that just doesn't, I'm obviously as a Catholic, I have my beliefs about the t- church teaching on marriage, but just the idea of Christianity being such a mouthpiece for sexually, sexually re- retrogressive ideas and practices just seem so at, odd, so at odd. So I'm wondering if you think that the winsome approach or how the evangelical world responded to the culture and to cultural innovations has, I, I guess, either cut against the ratchet of left-wing ideology taking over or has maybe contributed to it, albeit inadvertently.
0: The article you're talking about in First Things was called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. You can look it up. It's in the February 22 edition. It was actually the most popular article that they published anywhere in the print edition last year in terms of, of readership. So it really made a huge impact on people. Uh, I should also mention my, my actual sub stack is AaronRen.com. So you can look that up. And what I'd say is yeah, that article basically outlines the three groups of people that I mentioned before and shows how... The changes in the the nature of how culture views Christianity has impacted on those groups. So Christianity basically reached its high watermark around 1960 in America, then it went into decline. And I divide that period of decline from, say, 1964 to the present into three phases or worlds that I call the positive, neutral, and negative world. The positive world is, say, 64 to 94. It's a period of decline. Let's be clear about that. But also, culture is still basically positive towards being a Christian. You know, you could call yourself the moral majority and people aren't going to laugh you out of the room. If you're, you know, caught having an affair like Gary Hart in 87, you get flushed out of the presidential race. You know, being known as a good church-going man makes you seem like an upstanding member of society, that sort of thing. Then from 94 to 2014, we were in what I called the neutral world. You know, this decline hit a tipping point, and the positivity was sort of all ended, but we weren't quite negative yet either. And in this period, Christianity is just one more affectation or lifestyle choice among many in a pluralistic public square. Some people would say, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And you would say, well, I'm great. I'm a vegan. Let's talk. And you say, well, let's have a talk. It's just one more thing you could do. And then after about 2014, we actually hit a second tipping point under what I call the negative world, in which for the first time in the 400-year history of America, Christianity is now viewed negatively by society. Being known as a Bible-believing Christian does not help you get a job in Silicon Valley, quite the opposite. In fact, Christian morality is now expressly repudiated and viewed as the greatest threat to the emerging kind of new public moral order. And so I argue that What's happened to evangelicalism is as we've entered this negative world and there's these pressures from secular society are bearing down on these three groups, they're sort of deforming and morphing and it's producing a lot of this conflict. And what I argue is uh, rather than trying to you know, fight it out or try to extend these other models, what we should do is adapt to this new scenario. Just as through the positive and the the neutral world, evangelicalism adapted better than anybody, which is why it grew with secret sensitivity, cultural war, cultural engagement. What's the model for today? Like Rod Rear's Benedict option is an example of that. Now, what I would say is the churches you mentioned with the BLM signs and the pride flag are almost all mainline churches. Those are not evangelical churches. They tend to be very socially and politically progressive. So, and and culturally, just completely distinct. They're, They're... it's it's almost like the difference between Catholic and Protestant, just, just sort of the cultural difference between those churches and mainline churches. But nevertheless, you know, the mainline is getting sort of roiled by this. And I think, you know, uh, Dreer's book was probably a little early to market in, in that, you know, a lot of people gave him a lot of flack over the Benedict option, but now he'll tell you they're all coming back and saying, hey, I, I disagreed with you then, but boy, I agree with you now. It's become undeniable. It's become undeniable. And so that's that's one thing I would say. And what I would say is... The, the strategies of the past don't necessarily have a an end date. You know, there, there, there's still gonna be culture war people that can be successful. There's still gonna be secret-sensitive people gonna be successful, there's still gonna be cultural engagement people, which are the ones that you think of as the winsome people. They're gonna continue having success in a certain contexts, but we just need to add more tools to the tool chest. It's not about throwing the old tools away necessarily. It's about how do we add some new tools to the repertoire. I, I actually have not been involved in the, the winsome wars for the, for the most part, you, you know, because I think they they there is there is a legitimate debate to be had over style. I certainly think there's a legitimate debate to be had over style. But I also think we also need to think about substance. And uh, this is not so much in my article, but it's been a big focus of my work. It's basically how I got engaged in sort of Christian work in general is there's a lot of things that sort of evangelicals have taught and believed that are simply wrong, <laughs> and therefore we need to correct them. In order to do that, not that the core theology—they're not matters of core theology. We're not talking about the gospel here or sola scriptura. We're talking about things like I think purity culture, for example. If you remember purity culture, this idea of you know how you go about dating. Like, everybody now admits kind of purity culture was a big mistake. <laughs> we went a little wrong there. We, we're we we're, we're actually, like, giving life coaching advice to people that turned out to not be accurate and hurt some people. And so the, these are the sorts of things, particularly on sort of gender issues and men's issues, like the way that they talk about gender is just off. So I, I'm really like to be more focused on the substance than the style. You know, all things being equal, you know, it's, it's better to be, you know, Uh, low conflict and high conflict, but sometimes you can't avoid conflict either. You have to be prepared for the conflict.
1: I want to circle back to um, the discussion on wokeness because a accusation that I think a lot of post-liberals who, you know, a lot of them are Catholics will level against Protestantism, especially in the U.S., is that it paved the way for relativism and some of the social pathologies that we see today because, you know, their argument is that Protestantism made it so there it was more up to individual interpretation revelation versus this objective magisterium that you see in Catholicism. And, you know, hundreds of years later, we get drag queen story hour. What what would you respond to that accusation? You know, if I'm sure you probably have read, you know, pieces on this or maybe uh, have some response to um, that belief. Well, what I would say is you, you hit
0: something that gets right at why we started American Reformer. If you look at what all of the kind of post-Reaganite or post, you know, post-liberal or whatever thinking, it is very Catholic-dominated, and the people who are doing it are Catholics with an axe to grind against Protestantism. They're animated by an anti-Protestant animus. That's very clear in, in Patrick Deneen. For example, he doesn't like Protestantism. And, you know, unfortunately for them, America is a Protestant country, and they quite like America, I think, for the most part. And and so that's one reason, you know, if if you want to create something that's going to appeal to people, it's going to have to be something that's culturally resonant, which is, it has to be Protestant-based. It has to be culturally resonant with the people, with something like Catholic integralism, which is a completely outre ideology, is simply not going to be. You know, I'm not a deep expert on the Protestant Reformation, but I think if you look at the history, it's very clear that Protestantism did not spring forth fully formed from the brow of Martin Luther when he nailed his theses. Protestantism was one of many currents of reform that were ongoing in the Catholic Church, extending back at least a couple hundred years before. Protestantism. And so I don't, I don't subscribe to this idea that the, that the ideas of Protestantism are the root cause of all of our issues in society. But if you are going to actually make that claim that I would say the source of the virus was ultimately in the Catholic Church, because that is where the ideas originated long before they came into Protestantism. For example, this sort of humanistic movement uh, that got going when people like the Franciscans started to become more interested in personal salvation, of people and ministering to the individuals. and You just go back and, um, you know, Charles Taylor, the philosopher Charles Taylor, who's very anti-Protestant himself, Catholic philosopher, he basically acknowledges this in a secular age. When he tells the story of secularization, even though he's Protestant critical to be sure, you know, he makes clear this is not, Protestantism is not this apocal rupture that happened but it was an outgrowth of currents of reform that were well underway in the catholic church. So, you know, it's like trying to go back and say, you know, William of Ockham nominalism is where it all went wrong. Trying to find the where it all went wrong moment I don't think is really productive. I do think we need to correct things that are wrong, I would say. But nevertheless, there's not just one moment. These things are emergent proper uh, emergent phenomenon, they're contingent phenomenon. That's why They're not an an, an, uh, inevitable outworking of certain ideas, which is basically the left side. That's a leftist belief, this idea that, you know, we're on the wrong side of history. History is evolving towards ever greater liberalization, ever greater this, that, and the other thing. So I I don't think that's a particularly productive way to think. And I also think, you know, trying to assert essentially a particularized Catholic approach in a basically Protestant, culturally Protestant country is not going to work. And so that's that's what I would say. And so I, I I think we are kind of a multicultural, pluralistic society today. So certainly Catholics are part of it. We need the Catholic boys. But Protestants need to be much more vocal. And, you know, they need to have their own. They shouldn't outsource thinking about liberalism to people like Kat- Patrick Deneen because Patrick Deneen is anti-Protestant. And that thought, it really, you know, influences his thinking is what I would say.
2: Well, we've got time probably for one more question. So I think that would be a great place, a great thing to ask. At the beginning, you mentioned that American reformers trying to, in part, develop some political theory, some Protestant political theory, or political theology might be another word. So because, I mean, say what you want about Professor Deneen, he is quite a smart and serious political theologian or political theorist. So I guess from the American reformer perspective, from your perspective, your thinking, what would a strong alternative to the Catholic integralist or Catholic post-liberal political theory be from a Protestant perspective? Love to hear that.
0: Well, first off, we have tremendous resources in pro- political theory in the Protestant. This idea that like Protestantism doesn't have a tradition, that it doesn't have any sort of defined orthodoxy is not true. So, for example, I'm a Presbyterian, and we've got the, Pres- the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism, as well as comparable continental uh, things that articulate what we believe. So we've got our things as well. And the reformers, the major reformers, Martin Luther, you know, John Calvin, many others, especially in the Anglo tradition, articulated well-developed theories of politics and social theory. There is sort of an evangelical social teaching, you know, the Protestant social teaching as well. And a lot of this was sort of lost, um, I think... To the evangelical world which has been much more about practical considerations and about you know sort of saving souls than about thinking about some of these bigger issues and again when america was basically uh, run by sort of mainline protestants up through the 50s who although they rejected kind of con- traditional uh, beliefs and like the you know the you know the virgin birth or you know the miracles of christ or the, the bodily resurrection of christ they still basically embodied a lot of those political traditions and a lot of those things. And, and so it was America was sort of run on sort of a Protestant cultural basis. Well, now they're all gone. It's run on a different basis. We can't just outsource our thinking to the culture. We can't just outsource it to Harvard, which was originally in Yale, which were originally founded to train Protestant ministers and embodied that tradition for a very long time. You know, we we have to, we have to rediscover the – rediscover what the, the original protestant thinkers thought so that's what we're doing and we have a lot of people who are writing on it so there's a book that's getting a lot of uh, press and controversy right now called the case for christian nationalism written by stephen wolf now it's you know whether or not that's again uh, that stuff's way above my pay grade because i'm not a political scientist but wolf has a phd in political science from lsu you know he's a credentialed qualified person the people who are writing for American Reformer, many of them are eminently credentialed academic people who are capable of standing toe-to-toe with anyone like Deneen in terms of explicating Americanism, right, in American political theology. And by the way, one of the things that conservatism has done, for example, has essentially read Protestantism out of the American founding, where, where Protestant points of view are heavily, heavily embodied into the very structure of the Constitution. You know, our Constitution, is, you, know, uh, you know, there's there's some Presbyterianism in there in terms of our system of government. You know, there's some, there's some thought process uh, about that. And so, you know, I think conservatism has tended to, you know, because it is so Catholic-dominated, has tried to essentially read Protestantism out of the founding, which is not true. These were essentially all Protestants who had it, and many of them, although, again, They may have had, you know, somebody like Thomas Jefferson may have had some dubious, you know, dubious theology. Somebody like James Madison may have been very, very secular. Nevertheless, this was a Protestant founding. And so we're going back to what the Protestant ministers said. We're going back to what the Protestant, uh, the the Reformers said. And it's people who are eminently qualified to do that, who are writing these articles for us. Um, I, I feel like we are... As credentialed, as intelligent, as resourced, if not more so—than some of the post-right Catholic thinkers. Although I I, I respect many of them, although I, I I do have to recognize they're they're rec- they're they're motivated by an anti-Protestant animus. Let's just be honest; some of them are. You know, I'm not I'm not necessarily hating on those guys. I enjoyed I enjoyed Danine's book, Why Liberalism Failed.
1: Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us. And I know you mentioned previously your Substack. And you referenced a few of your pieces, which we will plug in the, in the the show notes, where whenever you're going to watch the podcast or listen to the podcast, rather, those will be in there. But is there anywhere else that people can follow you, um, American Reformer, or you know any of your other works or social media?
0: Right. Well, just go to my uh, go to sub stack, which is, again, aaronren.com aaronren com. Follow me on Twitter, Aaron underscore Wren on Twitter. And again, check out American Reformer, AmericanReformer.org there's a lot of great stuff on there.
1: Thanks again, Aaron. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to write an review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.